Israel uses bombs and guns, prisons and checkpoints to suppress the Palestinians. And far from being embarrassed about its oppressive tactics, Israel uses them as a marketing tactic, selling weapons, drones and spyware to the world, which it boasts have been battle-tested in Gaza and on the West Bank. In 1961, outgoing US President Dwight Eisenhower coined the phrase military-industrial complex to explain how the US military and manufacturers were on the same team. And today, Israel is a military-cyber-industrial complex, one of the world's biggest arm dealers and seller of some of the most invasive software. That's the subject matter of a new book, The Palestine Laboratory, by Australian writer Anthony Lowenstein. Anthony's first book was My Israel Question, which came out in 2006 and is now in its third edition. Since then, he's published more books and made several films. And he's a co-founder of the organisation Declassified Australia. The Palestine Laboratory was published in Australia by Scribe at the end of May, and it's a detailed read, taking us through the ways in which Israel experiments with methods of repression against the Palestinians and then sells them to authoritarian regimes around the world. And we're delighted to be joined by Anthony today to discuss the book and its arguments. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm Tommy Gadir, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Nam or Melbourne. And I'm David Glanz, also on Wurundjeri land. Welcome, Anthony, and congratulations on the book. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. It was a tough but very important read and I'm sure very confronting for a lot of people uh, to come into contact with all of those grimy details and we'll get into some of those during the course of this interview. Uh, But before we get into some of those case studies that you outline, I wanted to ask you about a term that you use throughout the book, uh, which is ethno-nationalism. We were curious to know what you mean by that and how this links the politics of Israel to the reactionary forces around the world. When I was doing an interview recently, someone said to me, don't you just mean fascism? I mean, there's obviously a, there's some truth for that. Let me briefly explain what I mean when I say that. And it's in the book, and I've talked about it a lot in relation to Israel. Israel, I would say, is the most, inverted commas, successful ethno- ethno-nationalist state in the world. What does that mean? It's a proudly Jewish supremacist state. If you're not Jewish, if you're Palestinian, Christian, Muslim, whoever, you're not given the same rights, both within Israel proper, but also obviously in the West Bank and Gaza. And ethno-nationalism essentially is the supremacy of one group or race over another. And the reason I think this is important is that I show in the book with a number of examples that Israel has become a model to a range of other countries around the world and groups who view how Israel has set itself up pretty much since 1948 as the best way to do so. So pretty quick example. So India would be to me the most, uh, uh, the biggest ethno-nationalist state in the world now. You've had Prime Minister Modi who's been there since 2014. He's a Hindu fundamentalist. He's creating a Hindu fundamentalist state. If you are not Hindu, there's roughly 200 million Muslims in India. You are treated as a second-class citizen. There have been pogroms against Muslims. There's an attempt to disenfranchise Muslims. You have groups around the world on the far right who traditionally have been neo-Nazis. And what really struck me, having been to some of these events and rallies for work, obviously not for pleasure, often you find the Israeli flag. You often find the Israeli flag flying at these kinds of rallies and people have a lot of support for Israel, not because they like Jews, but because they clearly don't but because they admire what Israel is doing and want to create something similar in their own area or state. So I give a quote in the book by Richard Spencer, who's a notorious alt-right leader in the US, who says he's a white Zionist. Now, what does that mean? He doesn't like Jews very much. He wouldn't admit that, but that's the truth in his background. But he wants to create a Christian ethno-nationalist fundamentalist state within the US. He's American. And Israel is that model because, A, it gets away with it, And B, I think there is this belief somehow that ultimately, so the argument goes, we all just want to be with our own, whoever that may be, whether you're Hindu or Jewish or Christian or whatever it may be. So I see ethno-nationalism as a grave threat. And one of the reasons I wrote the book, really, was to almost issue a warning 
to say to people, this is an ideology which is not new, but it's arguably never been more in the ascendancy, not least because of India, which is now the biggest country in the world, the biggest population, the biggest self-described democracy. I would question whether it is that any of those, but it certainly is the very powerful nations now friends with the US and Australia and the UK, because essentially it's not China, so therefore we're friends with repressive India. And India and Israel are remarkably close. They inspire each other to the point where a lot of what Indian officials are openly saying that they deeply admire what Israel's doing in the West Bank. I have lots of quotes in the book about saying they like what Israel's doing there to bring in lots of Jewish settlers to the West Bank and to settle Palestinian land, which is exactly what India is trying to do in Kashmir. Obviously, they're trying to bring Hindus to settle Muslim-majority areas. So India is not doing what it's doing in Kashmir because of Israel, for sure, but they're inspired by each other. And finally, India is one of Israel's biggest arms sellers. So Israel gets huge amounts of weapons from Israel to the point where I think there's a, not just a defense agreement, but there's an ideological alignment. And I would compare that very much to Israel and apartheid South Africa back in the day, which and those two nations could not have been closer right to the end. Another ethno-nationalist state, by the way, which was at its time a very influential, though clearly barbaric state. And right to the end in 1994, the only country, the only country that stuck to South Africa's side right to the end was Israel. And there's a reason for that. In the book, you quote an Israeli think tank, the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security, and I'll give the quote here. The growth of Israel's defence industries is a story of success inseparable from the history of the State of Israel and the entire Zionist project. Israel's defence industries are a source of national pride, and rightfully so. So you go into this a lot in the book, but for listeners, can you talk about how intertwined Israel's military and its weapons and cyber industries are? Like I put that quote in there because in some ways, although I'm offended by it, it's actually true. Um, it's actually undeniably true that it obviously comes from a, you know, a right-wing think tank that's very close to the state that supports the idea of the occupation, etc. But it's true. What does that mean? It means that very much since the beginning of the founding of the state in 1948, very soon after, David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister, saw the need for Israel to make friends. Now, that's on, in itself not particularly surprising. They're a new state. You want to make friends around the world. That's not on its face uncontroversial. But what he meant by that was, and he started that himself in the 50s and it massively accelerated in the 60s and 70s and to the point we are today, that was often was military alliances, selling weapons, selling weapons that had been trialed and tested in Palestine itself. And after 1967, when the occupation began in um, the Golan Heights, East Jerusalem, the West Bank and Gaza, Israel would proudly promote its work in so-called counterinsurgency against Palestinians as a selling point. And what that meant in practice was that many, many nations, particularly during the Cold War, Latin and South America, some of the most repressive regimes, I'm talking about Pinochet, Chile, from the, since 1973 onwards, I'm talking about Guatemala in the 80s, a range of other nations that were committing gross human rights abuses would openly say publicly and obviously also privately, and I've detailed some of those documents in the book, that they want to get some of the Israeli know-how that Israel was apparently learning by managing and occupying Palestinians to control their own populations, their own troubling, troubling minorities, how they would view it. So it was central to Israel's development to make transactional friendships by selling huge amounts of weapons, and that massively accelerated in the 70s to the point where the US had always been a close ally of Israel, and you could argue even to this day that it's hard to see Israel surviving without US support, unbelievable amounts of US support. But from the 1970s onwards, Israel became almost America's wingman. And what I mean by that is that when they were selling weapons around the world, even to the point where some regimes the US would not sell weapons to, and America sells weapons to anyone, really, if there was some particular controversy or there was some reason in the US Congress that they couldn't get weapons sales through for country X or country Y, who would come into the, in, in, to the, fill the breach? Israel. 
including some of the most repressive regimes in Latin and South America. So Israel's arms industry could thrive alongside the US. And I have lots of quotes in the book where Israeli officials acknowledge in a way after 1967 that many nations don't like what we're doing. They don't really love the occupation. They're against the occupation, at least in principle. And yet they were more than happy, A, to buy Israeli weapons and technology. And that, of course, has become into the digital cyber era in the 21st century. But I would argue also to this point today where Israel has now sold some sort of defense equipment to over 130 nations around the world, which is a huge amount. Um, and I think ultimately what you'll find is that I see it as an insurance policy, both in the past and now. What do I mean by that? I mean that there is undoubtedly in civil society growing opposition to the occupation of Palestine. You see that through polling in the US, parts of Europe, Australia, where growing numbers of people, I'm not talking about the political and media elites, I'm talking about the general public, are increasingly critical and opposed to the occupation. However, because Israel has sold so many weapons and so much spyware to so many nations, I would argue that those nations feel often less likely to be really critical and oppose Israel entirely. Sure, the European Union might issue the occasional press release and saying, oh, naughty Israel, don't expand settlements. The US under, say, Biden might express displeasure with the occupation. But what does that mean practically? It doesn't mean anything. It means nothing because practically they're still buying the weapons. The EU is still Israel's biggest trading bloc. There's no real chance of that changing in the short term, at least. Now, I think this doesn't diminish the rise of boycott, divestment, sanctions and my support for it. I'm not dismissing that at all. But practically speaking... Just this week, the 2022 figures for the Israeli defense industry were released. Israel releases them only about six months after the year has ended. And what did it find? The highest number ever, $12.5 US billion of weapons were sold in 2022, a quarter of which, 25% to Arab autocracies. <laughs> 25%. Now, what does that mean? The UAEs, the Saudis, the Bahrainis, these are nations, let's not forget, that a few years ago during the Trump era, called, you know, we were reading about the amazing friendship between Israel and the Arab states, the so-called Abraham Accords, which was all nonsense. It was an arms deal. And the figures in 2022 bear that out. So Israel, again, nations that years ago did not like Israel, opposed Israel, were critical of Israel, militarily and diplomatically. Much of the Arab world was hardly a big fan of Israel back in the day during the Cold War. That's changed. It's totally changed. And I would I would argue the Israeli defense industry and spyware has changed that. That's what's changed. I mean, I'm not saying the Arab people have changed their views. I mean, if you ask the average, and all the polling in virtually every Arab country says exactly the same thing. We don't like Israel. We oppose the occupation. We support Palestine. There's not even a question about that. But the Arab elites in general love Israel. Love them. They want their spyware. They want their defense equipment. And these, these figures from 2022 bear that out. 25% of, his, of Israeli arms sales is going to Arab countries. It's pretty remarkable. That's to say that's spyware, drones, missile defense, a range of other tools and technologies which are used to repress their own people. Yeah, that is, that is pretty remarkable, especially considering the popular discourse around victim status or that we don't we don't have any friends in the world we're really isolated nobody nobody supports totally. us except for the usa and it's nonsense um, it's absolute mm. nonsense i mean yes obviously there are i mean on the face of it you would say okay look at the you know the general un votes about israel or palestine you generally have the entire world on one side and the other side is normally us israel australia sadly you know micronesia palau and nauru so you say well hang on a second the entire world, apart from a handful of client states, including Australia, oppose Israel. This seems very lopsided, but actually that's that's to misunderstand how this works. Yes, those votes speak for themselves. You know, they, they are what they are. But because of the massive and growing successful arms industry, and just finally on that point, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has made the Israeli arms industry very excited. Why? Because there are countless now European states, not just Ukraine, but many, many others. And these figures, I think, will be reflected in 2023 defence sales, which I guess we'll find out in about a year's time. Almost certainly will be off the chart. 
because all these European states are now rightly or wrongly scared of Russia and Russian invasion, rightly or wrongly, and are desperate for Israeli missile defence shields, weapons, drones, spyware. So Israel finds itself in a very, from its perspective, a very comfortable position where any kind of political headwinds that may come against it, I would argue in the short to medium term, is unlikely to challenge its supremacy. Long term is a different story. We can discuss that if you guys want. But in the short to medium term, barring like with anything, you know, in current affairs, you don't know what's going to happen the next day. But it's really hard for me to see any real massive pressure being placed on Israel to end its repression when so many nations rely on Israeli technology and spyware for its day-to-day activities for oppressing their own people. Mm. Yeah, so it sort of speaks to the question of, um, or it suggests that Israel doesn't really have any limits to who it would sell its military hardware or espionage With a few exceptions. With a few exceptions. I mean, I say in the book, and this is partly my own research and partly what we in this area since they as far as we know they don't sell to north korea they don't sell to iran at least today of course they were massive friends with the shah before 1979 i detailed that in the book extensively right they they have no problem with iranian repression but the iranian regime today obviously is not exactly israel's best friend so as far as we know they're not selling weapons to them we don't think they sell them to the syrians for example under assad there might be a handful of others but in general like the us to be honest they'll sell weapons to anyone I mean, the U.S. is the world's biggest arms dealer. It sells 40% of the world's weapons. And Israel is now 10th. So obviously the other nations are higher. France, Russia. Israel's not number one. I don't think Israel will ever be number one. But Israel's a tiny nation. It's an absolute, I mean, it's a tiny nation with a very small population. And yet, as that your quote, David, was from before, it essentially has used its small population size status, which could be on the face of it a disadvantage for a nation that wants to develop and grow and make friends to a huge advantage because it uses occupied Palestinians, which are essentially in their backyard and are there indefinitely and permanently, as battle-tested uh, guinea pigs to try and test the newest weapons and drones and spyware. I mean, that's what is happening day after day. Yeah, and there seems to be no concern or a kind of willful denial in some instances about how Israeli products are used by their purchasers and some of these nefarious regimes. Is that a fair characterization? You mean by Israel or by... By Israel. Well, both, (laughs) but by Israel. I mean, mean, you know, when everyone talks about... I always find this funny. The media, and I say this as someone in the media, we always see the international community is outraged about something. Sorry, sorry, who's international community? You mean the US is outraged. I mean, the international community doesn't mean Nauru, right? You know, no one is... International community, this term that we hear about in the media is basically Western powers. Maybe the EU's upset, maybe the US is upset or supportive, or it's sort of a nonsense term that the media keeps on throwing around. Israel knows where these weapons are ending up. And I say this in the book, and I, this is something that I really was uh, stressing, because in the last few years, a lot of listeners will, be, will have read some of the coverage about Pegasus, the most notorious Israeli spyware produced by a company called NSO Group, which has been selling spyware to dozens and dozens of countries, dictatorships, democracies, essentially a powerful spyware that you don't even know if it's on your phone. This could be Android or iPhone, mobile phone, and it controls everything. So it gets access, it sort of hoovers up everything, you know, text messages, photos. It can control your microphone and camera when the phone is off, (laughs) even when the phone is off. So essentially, it's weaponized against you. And the reason I mention this is that there's been lots of good coverage in the last few years, you know, leaks about how ubiquitous this tool is. But it's too regularly framed as this rogue Israeli company selling all this terrible equipment around the world. How do we stop it? No, it's an arm of the state. That's how this works. It's not some rogue company that sort of Israel can't control and it's selling to dictatorships. And how do we stop NSO group selling to dictatorships in Africa or South America or elsewhere. No. As I say in the book with NSO and others, these companies essentially are used by the state. Netanyahu obviously has been the main prime minister for the last, God, far too long, but years. He and the Mossad 
the intelligence services from Israel will go to countries, and I say this in the book, I'm talking about nations like Rwanda, Saudi, UAE, India, and they hold out tools like Pegasus as a diplomatic carrot. They say, we'd like to be better friends with you. It's a very transactional relationship. We'd like to be better friends with you. We'd like you to maybe vote differently in the UN. We'd like to benefit you trade-wise, whatever it may be. And what will you get in return? We'll sell you the most powerful spyware imaginable. You can go after your own dissidents and human rights activists and journalists, anyone you don't like. And in country after country after country, as I show in the book, you can almost see the dates. When Netanyahu has visited a country or a leader has visited Israel, very soon after, in dozens, in many, many, many countries, spyware by Pegasus is then deployed against, you know, critics in those countries. That's not accidental. So the spyware becomes almost like a diplomatic weapon that's used and that Israel leverages. So when people say, oh, Israeli spyware is this rogue entity, no, it's the opposite of that, actually. It's a key tool of, of Israel's diplomatic outreach. And certainly at the moment, it's remarkably successful because this is what I find in country after country. Everyone's, it's a, it's, they're completely addicted to it. I mean, Mexico today, which is nominally run by a left-wing government, I say nominally because I would, anyway, compared to previous regimes, left-er than, you know, previous regimes, they are the most prolific user of Pegasus in the world, by far. They're obsessed with it. When I say they, I'm talking about law enforcement, police, military intelligence, going after dissidents and critics and human rights workers. And I feature some of them in the book, um, people who've been victims of Israeli spyware, including a wife of a Mexican journalist who was murdered by either the state or drug lords, we don't really know. But And she found out after his death that he had been monitored by Pegasus, she, her phone had been monitored by Pegasus, and... Even today, in 2023, there's been reports I see all the time that Mexican officials can't give this tool up. They're addicted to it because it's so powerful. And therefore, this presents a real problem because how do you therefore regulate a tool that everyone wants, wants they want access to it, right? And I mean, I'm on the face of it, it's hard not to be pessimistic about that. On the other hand, I think you could say the same about years ago, a conversation around chemical weapons or nuclear weapons. There is now a regulatory framework that exists in the world. It's obviously not perfect. There are states that ignore those frameworks and look at Israel as nuclear weapons, probably three to 400 nuclear weapons. They just ignore any kind of regulations. Sure, there are always going to be rogue actors. But in general, chemical weapons are less used than they were. We definitely, you know, in other words, compared to 100 years ago when nuclear, where chemical weapons were used you know on the battlefields of world war one there's more regulation and and when it comes to spyware we'll have to move to the same position my view is they should be banned entirely i don't think they should be used at all but you find as i said law enforcement and governments and military intelligence obsessed with this tool because they want to go after their own critics or dissidents in other words these issues it always bleeds out the companies say oh we're just Helping nations go after terrorists and criminals and pedophiles, sure, sure you are. I mean, I'm not saying it never goes after those people, it, it does. And, you know, I've got no issue with terrorists or criminals or pedophiles being caught. But the problem is it doesn't stop there. It never does. And there's always evidence that it goes after dissidents and critics, etc. So that sort of thing I think should worry people. There needs to be far more pressure on our own governments, frankly, and authorities to not, I would argue, to ban this. The EU is flirting with banning spyware. I'm not convinced they will because in virtually every European state, they're using Israeli spyware. But we can, yeah, it's tricky. Perhaps we can go back and flesh out a little bit the relationship between the US and Israel, because you talked about how US support for Israel is, is even today, uh, absolutely vital. And it's often assumed that Israel is so linked to and reliant on the US, it would never bite the hand that feeds it. But in the book, you describe times when Israel has spied on and in the US and Israeli businesses with state backing have been prepared to break US sponsored embargoes on nations in order to sell weapons and software. There's also the other question that always floats around, which is, are somehow that Israel is pulling America's strings. It's the so-called yeah. Israeli lobby. 
Do you want to untangle some of those relationships and talk mm. about how the US and Israel actually do interact? Look, the Israel lobby is real. I mean, it's sort of obvious to say that there is an Israel lobby in the US, as there is here in Australia. It has influence. It pressures in the US, Republicans and Democrats. There is general bipartisanship on this issue in the US. It doesn't really matter, to be honest, a great deal, whether there's Trump in the White House or Biden. I mean, in some ways, you could argue Trump was far more honest about that relationship, because I like Trump, I can assure you. But there is something about, he sort of said... We don't really like, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, you know, we don't really like Palestinians, we don't really trust them. And Israel's our best friend. The end, end of conversation. He accelerated the trends that were happening there already. Now, what the, the problem the Israel lobby increasingly has in the US, particularly, is two issues. One, briefly. One, there is currently a civil war going in in the Jewish community in America, which I think is fantastic. What I mean by that is, I mean, a non-violent civil war. There is a huge, and it's a bit simplistic to put it this way, but it's the easiest way to describe it. It's mostly generational. In general, younger Jews in America are turning against Israel, critical against Israel, pressuring their older parents, grandparents, Jewish uh, Zionist organizations to not be uncritical towards Israel. And that's, that's causing huge ruptures within that community which I think is necessary. I mean, the Israel lobby has provided key diplomatic financial support to Israel for decades, since 48, but particularly since 1967. So that civil war is vital. And within the Democratic Party, and I'm not exactly a fan of the Democrats, I can assure you, but this year for the first time, a Democratic uh, poll was done that showed that the majority of Democratic voters supported Palestinians more than Israelis. Now, that is, that is significant. Now, what does that mean practically, day-to-day? -day? Well, it's not changing the U.S. policy overnight, and it won't immediately. But there are shifts going on, and the Israel lobby is petrified of this, which is why increasingly they're doing two things in the U.S. It's sort of similar elsewhere, but with the U.S. particularly. One, almost accepting, they won't say this, but they're almost accepting the reality that liberal Jews are kind of a lost cause. Are you feeling all upset about the occupation? Are you? Oh, that's a real shame. We don't really care. We don't really want your support. We don't need your support. Screw you. I mean, I'm paraphrasing a, a complex conversation, but I see even now, you know, Israeli government ministers in Netanyahu's current government, many of whom are right, far-right extremists, who are going to the U.S. just in the last few months, basically saying to liberal Jews, up yours. You don't like what we're doing here in Israel or Palestine? We don't care. We don't care if you don't like us. We don't care what you want, to, want us to do. Don't be friends with us. Who cares? That has not really happened before, which goes to your question, David, about, so what does that do for the U.S.-Israel relationship? Well, traditionally, the argument was, don't bite the hand that feeds you. But, I mean, without U.S. support, it's not just financial. It's also diplomatic and others. Israel would have a problem. I mean, Israel takes huge amounts of U.S aid, so-called aid and military support every year. And that's unlikely to change anytime soon, whether it's Biden in the White House or Trump or anyone else for that matter, for now. But I think the US-Israel relationship is also, I view it as almost like an abusive relationship. And let me briefly explain what I mean by that is, yes, they're close friends. Yes, they rely on each other. Yes, Israel provides, provides massive support and defending Israel in the international forums, the UN and elsewhere. But they also don't trust each other <laughs> at all. And I say that because I have this in the book. We are, as far as I'm aware, there are at least 350 or 400 Americans in the NSA, which is, you know, the leading intelligence gathering arm of the US government, spying on Israel every day. That's their job. What's Israel doing? What is it saying? Etc. Now, is that happening in reverse? I don't know for sure, but you can be rest assured. Everyone's, I mean, everyone spies on everybody else. Okay. And the reason I say that's relevant is that this comes down to what's happened in the last few years where Israel, Israeli spyware, NSO group, Pegasus, what we we're talking about before, has been found on American diplomatic phones in Africa, particularly. And this upset the US. I said, how could you essentially, you know, you can spy on these other, we don't care about you spying on others, but you can't spy on us. You know, we're, you know, we're your best mate. So the US administration in the last few years has put sanctions on NSO group, which on the face of it seems like, wow, Israel, you know, America is sanctioning its best friend. 
But actually, that's misreading the situation. I see what's happening in that relationship as America wants complete global dominance in the spyware industry, and Israel is challenging that dominance. So when you have dozens and dozens and dozens of countries around the world that are buying relatively cheaply, I mean, there's still lots of tens of millions of dollars, but relatively cheaply Israeli spyware off the shelf, that challenges American spyware dominance. So America and its Five Eye allies, you know, Five Eyes is the intelligence um, partnership between Israel, sorry, between US, UK, Canada, New Zealand and Australia. Israel is not a member of that. It's, I could argue, an unofficial sixth member, but it's not the main main member. They are very upset with Israeli spyware proliferation. So although they're not coming out and regularly saying, how dare you, Israel, I mean, the US has said that a little bit, there is a growing unease about how Israel has in some ways gone rogue, <laughs> selling to whoever, challenging American domination and challenging American spyware companies that are trying to develop exactly the same tools. So yes, the US-Israel relationship, I don't think it's, as you said in your introduction, David, it's not a question of Israel says, we want you to do something and America jumps. The Israel lobby is part of this equation, as I said before. It's obviously been a massive part of US policy. But it's wrong to suggest, I'm not saying you said this, but it's wrong for others, and I hear this all the time, that somehow it's only because of the Israel lobby in the US, or in Australia for that matter, or elsewhere, that Western support for Israel is uncritical. It's a pl- it's a factor. I mean, Australia, I've been the victim for years of you know Israel lobby attacking me, trying to silence me very unsuccessfully, I have to say, which has been quite funny to watch. But there's been a sense that the Israel lobby is powerful here. There's no question about that. Whether in Australia the Labor or Liberals in power, most most people don't know is this is this is a slight break um, during the COVID era where obviously there wasn't much travelling. But the Israel lobby in Australia and in the US takes huge numbers of journalists and politicians to Israel on free trips all the time. And what does it show them? You can be you'd be shocked to know not much of Palestine. They might go to Palestine for five minutes. They meet some Palestine authority lackey who says, oh, yes, we, we love a two-state solution. Thank you very much. But they spend most of the time in Israel talking to generals and military officials and hearing about the threats from Iran, and they bring that message back. So, and this is not just politicians getting free trips, it's journalists, which to me is a journalist. I mean, what does that say about you're going to take a free trip and not even be curious to go, which most of them don't, by the way, to go beyond the tour that you've been given. Do you want to maybe try to spend more than five minutes in Palestine? Crazy idea. Or maybe try to get into Gaza. It's not easy, but it is possible. So I think there is a real sense in Australia also. The lobby, Israel lobby, realises it's not as powerful as it once was. I don't think there's any question about that. But I think it's wrong to presume that it's not still very powerful, regardless of who is Prime Minister and which party in Canberra. I think one of the really important things that your book does is that it doesn't just outline the examples of what Westerners would often think about as because of often, you know, media emphasis on like nefarious regimes and how they use weapons uh, or spyware, um, you know, deployed by or, uh, yeah, sold by Israel. You also talk about this relationship with what, again, Westerners would often think of as more benign, you know, parties and nations, and you talk about the relationship with Greece and the Mediterranean, with, you know, Netanyahu, um, you know, referring to Athens and Jerusalem as the two the two democratic cities <laughs> in the Mediterranean. But what's what's really disturbing about that relationship is that development of drones that you refer to and the way that they're being deployed to prevent uh, asylum seekers from crossing the Mediterranean to to seek safety in Europe. And you, you talk about how drone operators, um, rather than dropping life rafts or calling for help, doing precisely the opposite job and doesn't sound too different in its function to building a wall uh, in the West Bank, for example. So how has enforcing borders in this kind of aggressive way become such a core business from uh, for Israel from your perspective? Look, I think that's really important because a key part of the book, and I'm not the only one saying this, of course, is that the so-called border industrial process uh, um, industry is surging. 
on so many borders around the world, US-Mexico border, the so-called European borders on the Mediterranean, there is a growing and concerted effort, and there are obviously other borders globally, but looking at those ones particularly, there's a growing interest and desire to keep back brown and black bodies. There's just no question about that. I mean, you can see that just very brutally in how much of Europe has accepted Ukrainian white Christians. And don't get me wrong, I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, Ukrainians were fleeing a brutal war and they should be welcomed in as refugees if they are in those countries. I've got no issue with that whatsoever. But it's a pretty stark difference to how much of Europe is viewing Syrians or Afghans or Iraqis or Africans. Now, obviously, in 2015, this really stems from 2015, where there was a surge of migrants from Middle Eastern countries and Africa. Germany particularly took in around a million. Some other European countries did as well. But soon enough, there was a backlash politically against these individuals, are mostly Muslim, though mostly black, brown and black uh, men and women and kids. And this then massively accelerated Europe's border industrial industry, which was walls and drones. And the drone part of it is where Israel comes in, apart from the fact that a lot of European countries were getting advice, Hungary and Poland particularly, from Israel. How do you build a wall? How do you build so-called smart walls? How do we keep these awful people out? I mean, that's how they would view it. Migrants, refugees, Muslims. And the EU's role here, and as you said, I mean, you know, some people might see the EU as what would they see it as maybe a lovely democratic ideal or I don't know what they think. It depends, I guess, who you ask. But they wouldn't think of it like, I don't know, North Korea, obviously, right? And what the EU has done in the last years is they are using unarmed, at the moment at least, Israeli drones, drones that have been used by Israel in Gaza in its many wars against the Gaza Strip. Essentially, it's the European Union's eyes in the sky, they're going 24-7 around the Mediterranean monitoring the seas. And the EU made a decision a number of years ago, which of course they don't publicise or admit, but the reality speaks for itself. They decided to not to do two things. One, to not rescue many people anymore. There used to be this whole industry, you could call it, of huge numbers of rescue boats going around the Mediterranean, rescuing people who were in flimsy boats who were drowning which to me is, you know, the humane way to deal with this issue. Europe made a decision, when I say Europe, it's particularly Frontex, which is the border arm of the EU, but EU bureaucracy in Brussels, to no longer rescue people, mostly. So what does that mean? It means a lot of them are drowning. I mean, the evidence, that's overwhelming. Huge, now, we don't know how many. We're talking about huge numbers of people drowning in boats. And the Israeli drones are providing the vision back to... European headquarters. So they're the eyes in the sky and then the Europeans are making a decision, do we rescue that boat, do we not? Do we rescue that boat and tow them, as we often are doing now, to the Libyan Coast Guard? And the deals between the Europeans and the Libyans, Libya obviously was a dictatorship. Gaddafi was overthrown in 2011 by this utterly, in my view, criminal, misguided, so-called war of liberation. And for the last 10 years, Libya has become essentially a war zone and a slave state where they literally have slave markets. And this is a war pushed, I might add, by the so-called liberated West. I mean, the whole thing has been a farce. But despite that, the EU has paid huge amounts of money to the Libyans, to the Coast Guard, to, inverted commas, rescue some migrants from the Mediterranean. Those people are taken back to Libya, put in horrific conditions akin to jails, and often sold them to sex slavery. This is not my opinion. I mean, that's people can Google that and they can find... I talk about it in the book, but they can find reports from Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and many others. So the relevance to this is that this is increasingly, I would argue, how many Western states want to view immigration. In other words, the fear that many of us have, and I have this as well, is that as we are likely to see more and more climate refugees in the coming decades, in our part of the world, elsewhere, almost the, you know, someone has called it, I think I put this in the book somewhere, almost the, the Palestinianization of territory. In other words, what Israel is doing in Gaza, which is encircling it, there's 2.2 million Palestinians. It's 
surrounded on all sides by walls and drones and various other forms of surveillance. It's very hard to get in and out on the Israeli or Egyptian side. This is the model that many other countries want to impose on their own populations. People who, you know, the, the so-called unpeople, the unwanted populations. And Israeli technology and surveillance is and will continue to be a key part of that infrastructure. So what's happening in the EU, and I speak in the book, right, to one of the few NGOs called Sea-Watch, which are run out of Germany, and they have boats, essentially, that go around the Mediterranean rescuing people. I mean, I think it's an unbelievably noble, brave thing to do. They know they're massively outgunned. I mean, like they're literally you know, a handful of boats of people going around trying to find boats that are in distress, right? I mean, how much can you do as, as one organisation? And increasingly, their activities are criminalised within the EU. Their boats impounded, people arrested and charged, Italy and elsewhere. So the Israeli part of that, I think, is central because, A, those drones have been tested and used in Gaza, and that's the reason the EU is buying them because they have been battle-tested in Palestine. So, yeah, the, the border industrial complex really worries me. And just finally, I think Australia is also primed to do this same kind of thing. I mean, obviously, our border policies have been horrific for, well, how long? Forever. But particularly in the last 20 years since 9-11. Well, I mean, before, really, but it's obviously accelerated after 9-11 with the Liberals and Labor. It's been horrific for years and remains so under Labor now. But I don't think we're that far away, frankly, from armed armed drones being used in our northern waters to shoot boats out of the water. I don't think we're that far away from that at all. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be an Israeli drone, I don't know, but I don't think we're that far away from that at all. And that's a pretty scary prospect. And I worry how a lot of Australians would view that. And I fear, maybe because I'm a bit dystopian these days after writing this book, I fear a lot of Australians would accept it, out of sight, out of mind. I mean, Nauru and Manus Island has been running torture camps for years. And yes, there's public outcry and people are against it, to be sure. But I would never call it a mass movement in Australia against it. I mean, Nauru and Manus Island remain open. I mean, I just saw this week, for example. Australia apparently is about to remove the last refugees from Nauru in the next weeks. But they're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to maintain that infrastructure indefinitely. For who, who exactly, I guess, if, if the boats start coming again? I mean, that's the only way you can read this, right? And is there an outcry in Australia about that? No, there's not. There are people who are against it. I'm not, I'm not minimising that resistance by any means, but it's a small minority of people, right? So, yeah, the border industrial complex worries me, and I think it's growing, and Israel's already and will continue to play a major part in it. Thanks. That's very much a, a call to arms for all of us who are concerned about mm. human rights and, and refugees. Um, I'd like to take a bit of a segue. We talked before about Israel and the Israel lobby and, and poses itself as a, an oasis of democracy and so on. But of course, one of the arguments that Israel makes, and it makes it to Jews, is that it is a safe space for Jews at a time when anti-Semitism is rife and and growing. Yet in the book, you talk a number of times about how Israel is quite happy to do business with governments that foster or tolerate anti-Semitism. And I think you give an example from Argentina and Hungary under Orban is is very much the major current example. So it seems that anything can be swallowed in the name of Israeli interests. And alongside this, we're seeing anti-Semitism being redefined as being anti-Israel. That's really the core of the IHRA definition. Mm. Whereas anti-Semitism should be understood as racism towards Jews, it's now understood as hostility to Israel. And we've seen, obviously, the demonization of Jeremy Corbyn in in Britain as an anti-Semite. It was more than that. I mean, mean, demonization, he was was politically destroyed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the accusation he was anti-Semite when the man has been a lifelong anti-racist. Yes. And it's too often left to the left to deal with the real anti-Semites. So given your research in the book and your much longer term research, what's your take on this? I mean, the short version is that there's been a massive and concerted effort to weaponize anti-Semitism. I mean, there's no question about that. Anti-Semitism is real. It is a growing threat in parts of the world, violence against Jews, actual violence against Jews. 
synagogues being shot up in the US. I mean, that's been happening in the last years. It happened during the Trump era, a bit less during the Biden era, but in terms of shooting up synagogues. But the violence against Jews is real. I mean, there's no question about that. And as someone, I guess, who is Jewish, although secular and not religious, this the idea that Israel has in the past and continues, in fact, even more so, frankly, under the current Israeli government, is fostering ties with openly anti-Semitic regimes. I mean, not even hiding it. The example you gave a minute ago was Argentina. Argentina, not so much these days, of course, it's a bit more liberal than it was back in the day, but during the worst years of the dictatorship decades ago, it wasn't just anti-Semitic that was attacking and killing and torturing Jews. It was actually allowing Nazis to live there. I mean, you can't get much more anti-Semitic than that. I mean, what more can you have? You're basically giving comfort to Nazis. I mean, that, that to me is about as bad as it's going to get, right? And yet, and yet, Israel was not just happy to work with them, but to assist them. Now, I'm sure if Israel was here, speaking for itself, it would say, well, it's a rough world, we're going to make friends where we can get them. Okay, it is a rough world, sure, but the idea that you would, as a state, work actively against the interests of, I would argue, Jews, who are not either very hardline or far right or whatever, is an absurdity. I mean, there are roughly now 14 to 15 million Jews in the world, roughly half in Israel, roughly half in the US, obviously Jews in Australia and elsewhere, but in majority is in two countries, Israel and pretty much around New York. I mean, I'm being a bit facetious, but, you know, it's mostly in two places, right? It's a small population. And the idea that key Israel lobby groups in the US and Australia are now trying to weaponize anti-Semitism against Jews or non-Jews who are anti-Zionist, who are critical of Israel. And they say, oh, no, 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 you're allowed to criticize Israel, but there's a line that you're not allowed to cross. Well, firstly, who defines that line? If you are saying, you know, all Jews are, I don't know, vermin or something, if you're being openly anti-Semitic, then yeah, you're an anti-Semite. I mean, that to me is uncontroversial and you should be, you know, thrown out of polite society. But... If you are critical of the occupation, if you believe that Israel's existence and its its from its birth has been one of subjugating Palestinians, that's a legitimate point of view. You're allowed. I mean, it's like saying Australia's birth was illegitimate as a British colonial state, as was America. This is not unique to Israel. And my argument has often been that the the, the problem that Israel has as a Jewish supremacist state is that you are, my issue is equally with any other state that tries to, as we talked about at the beginning, ethno-nationalist states. I'm against a Muslim-majority state. I'm against a Christian-majority state because, by definition, they discriminate against those that are not that group. I mean, it's just obvious to say that. Look, much of the, the Muslim world, if you are not Muslim, you're often discriminated against. I mean, it's pretty uncontroversial to say that. Look at Saudi Arabia. If you're not Muslim, if you're Christian or, I don't think they mean Jews in Saudi these days, but... You're discriminated against. Not controversial to say that. It's just true. So I guess I'm encouraged, sort of, by the US under the Biden administration recently released its first kind of strategy to handle anti-Semitism. This has been long years in the process. There was massive pressure from the Israel lobby and also the more progressive side of the Jewish community to not adopt the IHRA, the definition that apparently... That in many ways, I think, blurs legitimate criticism with anti-Semitism. And the US kind of, this position was a foot in each camp. It kind of embraced part of it, but it also didn't fully embrace it. It embraced other alternatives to those so-called rules, which were more open. And I regarded that as a kind of a success of sorts. When anti-Semitism is real, it's growing. And I would say that it makes no sense for hardline pro-Israel groups and Israel to not acknowledge that Israeli actions are contributing to anti-Semitism. It's so uncontroversial to say that. It doesn't justify it, attacking Jews. It's like saying after 9-11, there was a global surge in anti-Americanism because of the US invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. It made perfect sense. It didn't justify attacking you know, an American tourist in Rome or something. Of course it didn't. But it made sense. It was the political context in which it exists. Today, Israeli actions against Palestinians are so egregious it's not surprising that a lot of people then deliberately conflate 
Judaism and Zionism, which, by the way, Israel and its blind supporters are happy to do. For them, there is no difference. A, you can't be Jewish unless you're a Zionist. And if you're not Zionist, somehow you're this weird fringe figure. And this what comes back to my point before. This is shifting in the Jewish community. It's shifting. And particularly, I'm saying in the US here, where there was a, I quote this, this study in the book because it's just remarkable. A few years ago, they interviewed a, a polling company, young American Jews. A quarter, a quarter of American Jews said Israel is practicing apartheid against Palestinians. A quarter said they're practicing ethnic cleansing. Now, you wouldn't have had those figures 10, 15, 20 years ago. Now, again, what does that mean practically? It means that those individuals are either leaving the Jewish community entirely, I guess, and living their lives, or they're actively trying to change the profoundly sclerotic kind of Jewish establishment that has spent years blindly defending Israeli occupation. So I, I am, I guess the, the, the comfort I take from some of this, if I do, is I am inspired by what's happening in the US in part to the Jewish community. I am inspired by it because it is finally shifting the dial on this. It's putting pressure on not just the Jewish establishment but also political leaders to not uncritically accept everything Israel does. But at the same time, I'm undeniably concerned that in many parts of the world, if you are Jewish, your life is not necessarily threatened, but certainly more in jeopardy than it would have been years ago. And I think Israeli actions undeniably play a part in that. And the worst thing, and the worst thing sorry, it's finally on this point, and, and, and not unimportantly, I think this is partly what's impacting public opinion. When you have an Israeli government, the current one, although the last ones have hardly been wonderfully liberal, the current government that openly, openly has members of the cabinet advocating ethnic cleansing against Palestinians. I mean, the extremism is so blatant and open. And I think for a lot of people, Jews and obviously others, they see that. And I hear this from people all the time who are not particularly close to this issue, who are not Jewish, who are just, you know, observers of the news, who just, you know, live their lives. They often say to me, like, what the hell is going on over there? How did this happen? How are we... Because many older Jews, at least, and older people, as listeners will be aware, who are a bit older, Israel years ago was a cause celeb on the left. Many years ago, Israel was, you know, a socialist paradise. Then it was always bullshit, of course, but that was the line that was sold. And that was very much the view until really the late 60s. The occupation, of course, has changed all that. I mean, it was always a lie. Of course, it was a, there, was a, there was grievous ethnic cleansing in 48, so it was always bullshit. But nonetheless, that, that line was there. But these days, the racism against Palestinians is so open and proud that in some ways, as some Israeli Jewish friends of mine on the left are saying, this Israeli government is the gift that keeps on giving. In other words, it's helping much the international community, whatever that word, that awful term I said we shouldn't use, general people in the international you know, world to recognise this is Israel. This is what Israel... It doesn't mean every Israeli Jew is a far-right fascist. Of course they're not. But it's pretty obvious, as one example, in the last six months, there's been huge amounts of protests in Israel against the current government. Now, people often say to me, isn't that a sign that democracy is alive and well? Well, yes, but no. I mean, yes, it's good that people are protesting a, a fascist government, but let's be clear, there are barely any Palestinians marching at all, virtually zero, and a few friends of mine who have been marching, Israeli Jews who are marching on the anti-occupation left, which is sadly a, a very small percentage of the population, they're often even not allowed to march with the other marchers because the main organisers won't let them march. How dare you wave a Palestinian flag? How dare you call for the end of the occupation? So these people, the majority who are protesting, are saving Jewish democracy. This is what they claim. Okay, well, that sounds lovely, but what does that mean? It means saving Jewish supremacy, really. And the government that was in power before Netanyahu last year, he was out of power for roughly a year. Think that was any, was any better? I mean, the occupation didn't suddenly end, right? It was just the same. There's a more ex open extremism now on the far right that's now in the government. I'm not minimising that change. But I think there is... I see this very much like South Africa back in the day, that white South Africans didn't wake up one day and say, gee, this, this apartheid thing's pretty awful, we better, better end it. No. There were some African, sorry, white South Africans, of course, who opposed apartheid and, you know, blessed them for doing that. And 
the name is etched in history, but the vast majority of whites were happy to go along with it. Without international pressure, that situation would not have changed. And Israeli Jewish friends of mine and Palestinians, of course, say it's exactly the same with us. This will not, this change will not come from within. There aren't enough of us to recognise that what's happening here is is immoral. Um, many Israeli Jews, if you ask them, will say, oh, the occupation's terrible and, yeah, we're against it and it's, we really should end it. Yeah, okay, but it's deepening and never been more permanent and it's actually getting worse, more blatant, more violence against Palestinians, etc. So international pressure, to me, is the only way this will ever end. And if you're a weird fringe figure in the Jewish community, then you're in good company in this podcast. <laughs> I'm happy to report. Exactly. Welcome to the Jewish fringe and others. Yes, that's right. The the last question that we were hoping to ask you is about the cyber espionage aspect of, of what you talk about in your book. And clearly the growth, growth of this, I guess, industry is, is dramatic and far reaching. And it's not just NSO, but uh, their behavior and willingness to ignore crimes against humanity perpetrated by their customers, um, which is pretty incredible just the extent of it. Could you take us through a little bit how Israeli cyber espionage tools have become day-to-day tools in the hands of repressive states, um, all kinds of states and of police and more? And is it Pegasus being used in Australia (laughs) on that note as well? Yeah, um, the short answer to that is as far as we know, it's not. And I say as far as we know because you can never be sure. What is being used though in Australia, and I've done some reporting about this, this is not in the book, but... It's in, um, people can find on Declassified Australia, the um, new site that I co-edit. A company called Celebrite is very much in Australia. Celebrite, most people won't have heard of, C-E-L-L-E-B-R-I-T-E. It's an Israeli, I mean, its most notorious tool is a sort of so-called phone hacking tool. So a lot of law enforcement around the world use this. If, for example, there's an iPhone that they want to hack into, the police or law enforcement, they use this tool to do so. And I was recently doing a search on the Tender website. Tender is where contracts with the Australian government is listed for the public to look at if they so desire. And in the last roughly 12 years, there was close to 130 contracts between Celebrite and virtually every single Australian government department, every main one, ATO, ASIC, ICAC, the list goes on. Now, sometimes that could be a benign use of the tool, for example, it's been used in the last years um, around the Brittany Higgins case. It's been used around the Gladys Berejiklian and, you know, Daryl Maguire, her very curious lover, all those very strange cases. Um, but it's also been used against welfare recipients. And there was a case that came out a few months ago, it was in The Guardian, one of the few papers actually that's reported on this, that Services Australia uses Celebrite to go after welfare recipients. This has very much reminded me of the robo-debt outrage here where a scandal that clearly impacted so many people's lives unnecessarily and we're still people still you know will be facing that for the rest of their lives the idea that an israeli hacking tool was used to go after a woman they wanted to check whether i think she said she had a boyfriend was that true or something okay so you know what what yeah i mean what can one even say about that i mean apart from the fact that what is completely depoliticized in Australia, and as far as I can see, barely even talked about here, which is why I'm talking about it here but elsewhere, is does the Australian government need to be asked questions, I mean, newsflash, yes, about buying a tool that is used by some of the most repressive regimes. And well, Celebrite is sold to Russia, China, which uses in China proper, in Hong Kong, Belarus, some of the most repressive regimes on the planet. And this is a tool that's ubiquitous here, and yet virtually no one knows about it. So I think that is a question that a lot of authorities here need to be asked, and I think the public needs to even be aware of it first. I mean, the examples, there are so many to list, so I won't list them all, but one of the most infamous cases in the last years was the use of Pegasus um, on Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi writer who was obviously killed in Istanbul in 2018 by the Saudis that, you know, cut up his body, you know, dismembered him. I mean, the most horrific crime in the East, done in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. And it became clear very quickly that, NS, that Pegasus had ended up, had been on his phone 
his friends' phones, his um, he had a number of women in his life, his women's phones, wives, girlfriends' phones. Essentially, he was being watched and monitored by the Saudis. And that was a tool that had been sold to them by the Israelis. So it seems pretty clear that the fact that the Saudis knew so much about his movements was principally because of this spyware um, that the Israelis had sold the Saudis. There are so many other examples. I go into this in the book. I mean, in India, as I said before, you know, the world's leading ethnostate now, or the world's biggest ethnostate, I should say, they use it constantly against critics and dissidents, writers, lawyers, human rights workers. I detail some of that in the book, and I interview a lawyer there who was investigating a case that was critical of the state, and they had their phone hacked. Their phone, they, you know, their life upended because of it. Their sense of privacy completely broken. I mean, the question you asked was about: Are there any limits to what Israel would do? Well, the short answer is no. There's no limits because there's no accountability. When you have complete impunity, the question of morality is irrelevant. I mean, you and I might find that morally repugnant, which we do, but the arms industry by definition is morally repugnant. That's the nature of the arms industry. I mean, it is it is not just Israeli, but the global arms industry is either the biggest industry in the world or the second biggest. It is worth, I mean, no one even knows how much, but huge amounts every year, trillions, it's one of the most corrupt industries in the world because often massive bribes are paid to various players. And the fact that Israel has now become, if not the leading spyware maker in the world, certainly one of the top globally, again, it comes back to my same question. What kind of legacy is that? Like, what kind of legacy is that for any country? But a nation that was, I mean, born obviously by ethnic cleansing in 1948, but born in the ashes of the Holocaust, really, um, not to obviously minimise or ignore what Israelis and Jews did in 48 to Palestinians, but essentially it's, I think, pretty uncontroversial to say that Israel would not have been born in 48 had there not been the Holocaust. I think that's pretty uncontroversial to say that. But this is the legacy 75 years later. This is the legacy. The legacy is essentially selling weapons and arms and spyware to the worst regimes in the world, and, yeah, I mean, often I'm just sort of lost for words about how to even express that. Like, what does that say about the... It's just a, It's just such a complete moral and ethical collapse. I mean, I don't, it's even hard to know what to say beyond that. And again, other nations sell horrible weapons, Russia, France, the US. It's not just Israel, well aware of that, and I say that in the book. But the use of spyware, particularly in the digital era particularly selling to repressive regimes. And again, go back to my point before that when in 2022, Israel sold, and I suspect this number is an underestimate, $12.5 billion US of defense equipment, of which 25% goes to the Arab autocracies. I mean, those figures are astounding. As I said, a lot of that is going to be spyware and drones and all this other horrible equipment. And these are nations, apparently, that are friends of the West. These are all our friends as well. And I say our friends, Australia's friends, America's friends, is our allies. So I very much see Israeli actions as perpetuating repression and propping it up. And again, it comes back to the same point. Without outside pressure on Israel, this will never change because, it, because it's, it's, too, it's too appealing from the Israeli perspective to keep selling this. And it comes back to, David, a quote you had near the beginning of our conversation, right, that right-wing think tank that says, Israel, we should be proud of this. We should be proud of what we're selling to the world. This is, how, which, this is what makes us strong. To which I would respond, sorry, what makes you proud? It makes you proud to be selling the worst weapons in the world to Saudi Arabia, to Bangladesh, to the Philippines, to other states. That's what makes you proud. Like, in other words, your existence as a Jewish state is determined by you selling horribly repressive regimes to dictatorships. Well, if that's your judge of success, then you've had a moral bypass. Like, what can one say? I mean, that view is a common one in Israel. I'm well aware of that, and in much of the global Jewish community. But I have to say, these issues actually don't get talked about much in the, in the Jewish community. Like, you don't have forums in Sydney or Melbourne saying, 
you know, our proud boys and girls in the IDF, you know, surveilling Palestinians. You know, we don't have conversations. I mean, they have IDF soldiers coming to Australia, right, and selling the message about our glorious army. But they're often not talking about the nitty-gritty. What does it actually involve? And what does it involve in selling these weapons to repressive states? You don't have forums talking about that. I would wish that they would. <laughs> I think there's probably a side of many in the Jewish community that don't want to think about it. Well, I think that's what makes your book so valuable, Anthony. And you've done the hard yards, the research, and now people can't say they don't know. I'd recommend people to rush out and buy a copy of the Palestine Laboratory. Um, thank you. Thank you. Multiple for the book. copies, David. Multiple Mo copies. Christmas well, is coming. Multiple copies. Yeah, buy one, shoplift more. Yeah, I know. I know the general <laughs> theme. So, thank you for the book. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me, guys. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you.